Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bella. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Nathan Connolly. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. Brian and Ed, if I were to ask you two to name famous millionaires from the 19th century, who would you say? Well, first I'd ask you not to, Nathan, <laughs> but if I really had to answer the question, I'd say John Jacob Astor, the real estate mogul. I'd say Cornelius Vanderbilt. I mean, even his name sounds like a million bucks. <laughs> Well, that's right. Now, those two are both famous white millionaires. But what if I told you there was actually someone else, someone just as successful, who belongs in the same breath as a Vanderbilt or an Astor? His name is Jeremiah Hamilton, and he happens to be one of the first African-American millionaires in history. He amassed his wealth in the 19th century in New York City, and he was a brilliant businessman. And like many of those businessmen, his dealings weren't always above board. So we're going to start off this story off the coast of Port-au-Prince in the 1820s in Haiti, where Hamilton undertakes a scheme of forging Haitian currency. A consortium of New York merchants in 1828 gets a load of counterfeit currency, and Hamilton's only about 20 years old. That's historian Shane White. He's in charge of, and he's black, so he's running it down to the Black Republic, uh, Haiti. And ironically, they, they get caught because... The counterfeits are too good. There's there's too much silver in the coins because mm. Haiti, Haiti is is uh, watering down their their currency as they're being sort of uh, uh, screwed basically by by right. France, um, right? And they're having to pay huge huge debts. So Americans basically a they're trying to make money, and b in the back of their minds they know they're completely and utterly undermining the other republic in the in the hemisphere the black republic and they get jeremiah hamilton as their front man and so they get caught down there and he sort of runs away uh, and ends up being sort of sheltered by black fishermen around port-au-prince harbor for a day or two before he gets on a boat and goes back to new york city now, how did he manage to go from this experience into the world of finance? Well, again, you've got to finance sort of sounds really sort of highfalutin. You've got to, <laughs> we've got to remember that this is the free market untrammeled by any regulation in any way, shape or form. You could get away with murder on pretty much on uh, financial murder on, on Wall Street. Mm. So he actually, Jerry Hamilton, Hamilton struggles when he first, he moves to New York City in probably 1833 or 34, and he struggles for a bit, but he actually finds his financial feet by again engaging in what you could argue is a very American enterprise. He over-insures boats with insurance companies and then arranges to, to sink them and claim mm. the insurance. Um, mm. And then as now... Many people thought that if you ripped off an insurance company, that's not really theft. But right. going to the point of insuring and then sinking uh, boats is most people would concede that was over the line. And in fact, the American insurance industry in New York 
starts to form an association in part to stop people like Jeremiah Hamilton sort of ripping off the insurance companies. So that so you have insurance companies organizing to basically create their own regulations to keep people like Hamilton out of the game. Yep. So there's actually a court case in 1835 or 36 in which one of the witnesses plaintively says, we have met and we've we got a regu- not a regulation, we've agreed amongst ourselves that no one will insure Jeremiah Hamilton for anything. Mm. Um, but Hamilton had arranged through a proxy that they had insured him. And so he was getting around their regulations. It's, it's primitive the way these, associ- these insurance companies are associating with one another, but they're beginning to try to regulate the industry to stop uh, whole-scale fraud. And also they get more and more involved the insurance company has to agree on who the captain can be on boats and stuff. They're getting more and more involved in the way the shipping business is being run out of New York. So, so one of the stories then about the origins of regulation actually begin from these small associations, in effect. Yes, it does. Um, I, I find it interesting that this African-American guy is involved in in the, these institutions, insurance companies, uh, end up basically black banning uh, him, the insurance industry, and then the secondary stock exchange later on in 1846, it passes a regulation, tries to pass a regulation saying anyone who buys or sells shares from Jeremiah Hamilton will be expelled from the stock exchange. So at least, <laughs> so, so the interesting thing is that the, the, the playing field is not level. Uh, he's known as the Prince of Darkness. So he's he's known as being black. And, and, and satanic, and by, by their estimation, I guess, in terms of the double meaning of that word. Yep. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. So, so it's a, it's, you know, it's a re- that's a retrograde nickname. And yeah. he had a reputation for being slippery, fast and loose. Today on the show, we'll be looking at the figure of the American millionaire. How did millionaires become iconic figures in American society? We'll be discovering the true story behind the origins of the board game that aims to turn us all into millionaires through real estate speculation. And we'll be hearing more about Mr. Jeremiah Hamilton, of course. But first, in 1889, one of the wealthiest men in America publicly announced that he was going to give away all his money. And not just that. In a pair of essays which together became known as the Gospel of Wealth, Andrew Carnegie argued that the wealthy had a moral duty to give it away. The Gospel of Wealth by Andrew Carnegie. The problem of our age is the proper administration of wealth. I've read the Gospel of Wealth 20 times, 50 times. I was giving a class to high school teachers, and they wanted a primary source, so I read it again. And I came out of this last reading just astounded. He says in the Gospel of Wealth, Capitalism generates huge inequality, and that's the way it's got to be. So what do we do? The capitalists have to start giving back their money. That's David Nassau, the biographer of Andrew Carnegie. 
When Andrew Carnegie sold his steel company to J.P. Morgan in 1901, the Carnegie Steel Company was valued at more than $400 million. Carnegie had been giving his money away for three decades, most famously in the form of free public libraries, which he gifted to two and a half thousand communities around the world. I mean, the scope of his philanthropy is extraordinary. He thinks the people of Pittsburgh should be able to see a dinosaur. So he sends an expedition to Arizona to dig up dinosaurs. And then he thinks the people of the world should see dinosaurs. So he creates molds from his dinosaur bones in a warehouse and creates fake dinosaurs that he gives to museums all over the world. He thinks people should have access to classical music. He buys pipe organs for churches so that working people, when they go to church, are going to get good classical music. He creates what he calls bathhouses, but which are really gyms, meeting rooms and community centers. And later in life, he becomes the number one peace activist probably in the world. So what drove his radical philanthropy? Let me tell you how Carnegie begins. Carnegie's fortune is made by his mother because his mother decides to relocate the family from Dunfermline, Scotland. Mrs. Carnegie, understanding that her boys, Andrew and his younger brother, had no future in Dunfermline, put them on a boat, borrowed some money, and took them to what was then known as Allegheny City, which is today part of Pittsburgh and was then just over the river in Independent City. Carnegie knew damn well that as a little man, he was maybe four foot ten, four foot eleven, who didn't dig the coal, who didn't mine the iron, who didn't run the railroad trains, who didn't stoke the ovens or keep the ovens, who wasn't a barrow man who moved the molten steel to the molds. He knew that wealth is not created by the capitalist, by the entrepreneur, but by the larger community. He knew damn well that if his mother hadn't moved him to Pittsburgh, where within 50 miles there was iron and coal, and Pittsburgh, which was the gateway to the West, he would have been a shopkeeper, someone probably a successful shopkeeper, but a shopkeeper. He understood as well that if he had not arrived in America before the Civil War, come of age after the Civil War, when the population is expanding and moving West, there would have been no need for the trains, and for his steel. So from a very early age, he understands that this money doesn't belong to him. Serious obstacles to the improvement of our race is indiscriminate charity. It were better for mankind that the millions of the rich were thrown into the sea than so spent as to encourage the slothful, the drunken, the unworthy. Of every thousand dollars spent in so-called charity today, 
it is probable that $950 is unwisely spent. Everybody who's written about Carnegie says that when he becomes a philanthropist, he becomes a softer, nicer, gentler, more humane individual. The opposite is true. Carnegie knows that he's going to give away his fortune from very early on. Before he's even got that fortune, he's going to give it away. So what that means is he feels that he is entitled to exploit his workers to create a larger fortune to give back to the community. Now, I'm sure he doesn't call it exploiting, though, doesn't it? I mean, in his own mind, is, is that the calculation he's making? Boy, that's a good question. Yes. Yes, I think so. There's this great scene, which I write about in my biography, this wonderful scene when he returns to Pittsburgh to dedicate one of his libraries. And for this ceremony, the mayor is there and the governor and the leaders of church and schools and universities. There's a procession, and they all line up in this library. And he gives his prepared speech, and at the end of the speech, he looks and all the way in the back, he looks out and he says, and I see workers here. He said, and some of you may work for my steel mills. He said, and you're thinking to yourselves, why didn't he pay us more? He'd have less to give away and might have had to build a less grand library. But why didn't he give us our fair share? I'll tell you why. Because if I had raised your wages, you would have spent it on a better cut of meat, maybe some thing to drink that you shouldn't be drinking. He said, but that's not what you need. What you need are libraries, museums, concert halls. He said, and it is for the best, for the community, and for your children, that it works out this way. So, so he knew what he was doing. And as he becomes a philanthropist, he becomes, you know, more exploitive. I mean, he institutes a 12-hour day. He puts his workers on shifts so they work six and a half days. They get a half day off so that they can switch from days to nights. They work 12 hours. And in order to pay his workers as little as possible, so that he does not have to improve conditions in the plants that result in you know, untold injuries and deaths from workplace accidents, he's got to break the union, and he breaks the union. The man who dies leaving behind many millions of available wealth which was his to administer during life, will pass away unwept, unhonored, and unsung. No matter to what uses he leaves the dross which he cannot take with him. Of such as these, the public verdict will then be, the man who dies thus rich, dies disgraced. The... Apex of Carnegie's influence, I think, comes in the last 20 years 
when Vartan Gregorian becomes the president of the Carnegie Corporation and he preaches the gospel of philanthropy. He brings it to the West Coast and he preaches it and does so brilliantly to Gates, to Buffett, to a variety of fabulously wealthy uh, new wealth and, you know, convinces them that this is their responsibility hmm. to give away their money as Carnegie did. So it's a delayed consequence by almost 100 years. There's, yeah, there's a delayed consequence. But, but you can understand why philanthropy would appeal to millionaires as it appealed to Carnegie because they are convinced, as Carnegie was, of their intrinsic brilliance that if they've made these gazillions of dollars, they have a will, they have a capacity, they have a series of intellectual and cognitive skills that if they turn to spending that money to save the universe, who better than they? And at the same time that trust in government declines, Right, right. In large part because these millionaires are saying, you know, regulation is bad for us, big government is bad for the people. So the importance and the rhetoric of philanthropy and the philanthropic sector is, you know, is ramped up. Carnegie always claimed that he, you know, was an American through and through and he was a right. loved democracy and he hated the hereditary dynasties of Europe um, and the, the kings and queens should be eliminated and the people rule. But he didn't believe in rule by the people. He believed in rule by the fittest who had survived. Right. And right. how do they do that? By bypassing government through philanthropy. And when you look at the ways in which American society is developed with philanthropy creating our universities, our colleges, our museums, our concert halls, I mean, I can go on and on in ways that were unimaginable in Europe where the government sponsored these cultural and artistic enterprises. Right, right. I mean, that's... That's the gift of Andrew Carnegie. David Nassau is professor of history at the City University of New York and the author of Andrew Carnegie, published by the Penguin Press. Now, everyone knows that American millionaires live on Park Place. But did you know that sometimes they get sent to jail, they don't pass go, and they definitely do not collect $200? I thought you were going to discuss insider trading there for a second, but you're actually talking about the rules of monopoly, aren't you? Quiet, Nathan. I'm just going to buy up the Pennsylvania Railroad. 
When we grow up, we want to be just like you. Rich! Well, boys, I'll tell you my secret. Build hotels on Boardwalk. These are commercials from Monopoly that aired in the 1980s and 90s. Monopoly's been bringing people together for almost 50 years. That's how long we've been wheeling and dealing together, building hotels together, and going to jail together. Warner the market and utilities. You can't lose. Whether or not Monopoly brought your families together, or more likely drove them apart, one thing is clear, and it has to do with that 50 years part. These commercials have their history all wrong. Producer Kelly Jones caught up with the author of a book about the origins of Monopoly. Here's Kelly to tell us more. The common story about Monopoly's origins is a classic rags-to-riches tale, and it goes like this. In the 1930s, a despondent and unemployed man named Charles Darrow invented the game to make himself feel better about being poor. Ultimately, and this is the part of the story that is true, Darrow became the first millionaire board game inventor when he sold it to Parker Brothers, living the very dream that Monopoly celebrates. But Mary Pylon, author of The Monopolists, says that Darrow didn't invent Monopoly. It was invented by a woman a few decades earlier, and it was originally called Landlords. The game dates to a woman named Elizabeth McGee, and she gets a patent for her Landlords game in 1904. And she had originally devised the game as a teaching tool to protest against monopolies and the monopolists of her time. Elizabeth, or Lizzie McGee, was a devout follower of anti-monopolist crusader Henry George. He was the author, most famously, of Progress and Poverty, a book that sold millions of copies in the 1880s and 90s. At the time, the only book that sold more was the Bible. And the core of his argument was something called a land value tax or a single tax. And his basic idea was that people should own 100% of what they made or created, but that things found in nature, like land, should belong to everybody. George's efforts kick-started progressive reforms around the turn of the century. But when he died in 1897, his followers were concerned that they wouldn't be able to keep his movement afloat. At the time, Lizzie McGee had been delivering anti-monopolist lectures in her Maryland living room. She felt a strong responsibility to keep the single-tax message alive. And lo, the game of landlords was born. And much like Monopoly today, you pick a token, although the charms and things wouldn't have been there, and you try to make your way around the board gathering properties. And her original board had railroads, it had uh, go-to-jail, it had um, public park instead of free parking. So it's not wildly dissimilar from what a lot of us know as Monopoly today. But the landlord's game was different in one crucial way. McGee's game had two sets of rules. In the Monopolist rule set, The goal was to gobble up all the property you could and drive your opponents into bankruptcy. But in the second, anti-monopolist, single-tax-inspired rule set, every player benefited when one player benefited. There were no taxes on essential utilities. All rent was first paid to a public treasury, not a private property owner. That public treasury eventually got used for things like making railroads and college free for everyone and raising wages, that fistful of dollars you get for passing go. The game was declared over in just five rounds. It might seem weird to have invented a game that you have to play twice, but the two rule sets were supposed to teach, through stark contrast, the merits of spreading wealth versus the evil of hoarding it for oneself. The two rule sets lasted for a couple of decades. McGee renewed the game's patent in 1924, but by then, it was clear which rule set was the most popular. 
And even as capitalism's boom and bust cycle showed its ugly side in 1929, the monopolistic rules prevailed. They allow us uh, a context for role playing. And I think that this idea of being able to throw around property and a lot of money at a time when the middle class didn't have a lot of that and was very much struggling, there's a fantasy aspect to that that I think made Monopoly really, really appealing. Charles Darrow, the guy usually credited with inventing the game, capitalized on the appeal of this fantasy to Depression-era Americans down on their luck. His board game was just landlords without McGee's single tax rules. He called it Monopoly and sold it to Parker Brothers in 1935. The same year, Parker Brothers bought up McGee's patent for just $500, cornering the market on financial board games and essentially securing a monopoly on Monopoly. Mary Pylon says it wasn't simply the very real prospect of poverty that made middle-class Americans want to play at being rich. Because as middle-class prosperity returned after World War II, Monopoly continued to enjoy huge popularity. In fact, at that very time, tiny irons, thimbles, Scotty dogs, and top hats became staples of American households. You know, the middle class needs a nice refrigerator and they need, you know, n- nice appliances and you have the rise of the suburbs and things like that. And Monopoly very much becomes like another ubiquitous household item. In the second half of the 20th century, the aspiration to wealth was coming to define the American dream. More and more, it was a part of what it meant to be middle class. Monopoly, the cunning, cruel, and, according to Lizzie McGee, evil version of the game, perfectly embodied the new American dream. And if you wanted to keep up with the Joneses, you'd better have a hotel on Boardwalk. Producer Kelly Jones. Helping her tell that story was Mary Pylon, author of the book The Monopolist. Now, remember Jeremiah Hamilton, one of the first African-American millionaires? We heard about his less-than-scrupulous business dealings in the insurance market in Wall Street earlier in the episode. He was so rich and famous by the time of his death, newspapers across the country published obituaries in his honor. Democrat and Weekly Sentinel, June 26, 1875. Mr. Jeremiah Hamilton, for many years past one of the noted men of New York, died a few days since of pneumonia at the age of 62. He was a colored man, but from the circumstance of having worn a fine, black, long-haired wig, had somewhat the appearance of a Mexican or Spaniard. He had a peculiarly shrill voice, and without the slightest effort, always made himself heard, whether desirous of doing so or not. He was an intelligent, gentlemanly man, and is reputed to have left a fortune of $2 million to his two daughters, accomplished women and much respected. But what makes his life truly extraordinary is not necessarily how he amasses fortune, but when. Historian Shane White explains the racial context in 19th century New York City. Slavery formally ends in New York State and on July the 4th, 1827. I actually think there's this incredible cultural convulsion because mm. New York really is the, one of the first places in the world to have to cope with how do you work out race relations once slavery has ended. So they're pioneering, and in New York City, they're pioneering the development of free black culture. But there's this aggressive 
pushing at the boundaries of now they're no longer slaves of what freedom meant. So, and there's this incredible mixture, this bouncing backwards and forwards between black and white that's going on. And like talking about Jeremiah Hamilton in this context is sort of interesting because um, he distanced himself from these other African-Americans, but whether he liked it or not, from, from almost all the New Yorkers, he was just another black, and he mm. actually, the way he behaves on Wall Street is part of this, as I suggested, cultural convulsion that lasts for about 15 years in, in New York City. So, so give, me, give, give me an example, if you can, of, of this kind of personality or what you found to, to give you some sense of him as a character. I'm trying to remember the exact date, but in the, in the 1830s, as he's first establishing himself, some business rivals arranged to have him arrested. At this time, he's, he's actually living out near Blo- at Bloomingdale, up near, near Columbia University, actually, outside the city, uh, then the city in the 1830s. And these business arrivals arranged to have him arrested at 11 o'clock at night by the police for a charge, a trumped-up charge, so that he spends the night in prison. Uh, like it's too late for him to arrange bail. And it's vicious. And it's, a couple of weeks later, those t- same two white guys get arrested at 5 o'clock in the morning and bail gets so set so high, they can't get out for a week or two. Again... You do it to me, and I'm going to come straight back at um So he arranged that arrest, Jeremiah he, Hamilton. He, well, I can't actually connect it that he spoke to someone, but it very much looks, that's the, <laughs> that's what it looks like. That's what happened as far as I'm concerned, uh, <laughs> uh, looking looking at the, at the sources. So he, he does that sort of thing uh, continuously. He's very, very, very clever. You'd love to meet him, but you'd... You'd always keep your hand on your wallet because, uh, <laughs> because like he had a very loose idea of what was right and what was wrong. Hmm. Now, he's not the only African-American in New York by a long way. Did he have any standing at all in the broader African-American community in the city? He has absolutely, as far as I can tell, he has absolutely nothing to do with any other African-American in the city. So the other... <laughs> that one. <laughs> yeah, I, like, like it's, it's amazing. Like, he's chasing him through the census. His servants are, are white um, in, his, in his house in New York City. Mm. His friend Benjamin Day's wife takes in charitable cases as part of reform type of impulse. So does... Um, Jeremiah Hamilton and his wife, their charity cases are white uh, as well. They're not, they're not African-American. Mm. And to me, one of the most amazing images is in the mid-1840s, Jeremiah Hamilton, he, he, several times he tries to leave the city. And in the mid-1840s, he buys an estate in New Jersey it's 250 acres. It's a mansion. It's got 10 bedrooms and a ballroom. Wow. It's got a trout stream. It's got quail and grouse hunting on it. So the idea of a black man standing on his terraces in New Jersey looking down over his trout stream is not the image that comes to mind when you think of African-Americans in the north in 1845. Um, mm. And what was also typical of him was when he bought that, he bought he bought that estate from someone who actually didn't have the legal right to sell it. So he tried, he bought it on the cheap and was trying to uh, leverage and 
do things in an underhand fashion and there's a court case and he ends up losing it and gets turfed out of it, which means he moves back to New York City to East 29th Street where he buys a house where he lives for the rest of his life. And it's the house on 29th Street that is attacked by a mob during the draft riots of 1863, yes? Yes, yes. And and, uh, as I, I mentioned before, Jeremiah Hamilton for 40 years is this aggressive and just to make things even worse in the late 1830s he actually gets he's he would have been 28 or 29 he gets a 14 year old white girl pregnant and again he, he breaks the stereotypes these sorts of temporary liaisons are quite common but this was the beginning of a marriage that lasted for 40 years and they had 10 mm. children between the two of them so he's He's married to a white woman, so that means that every time he walks down the street with a white woman, there's the chance of, of violence. And what, the, what was threatened for 40 years finally happens in July 1863 on the second day of the draft rights when a mob turns into 29th, East 29th Street and the mob is chanting 68, 68, 68, which was the number of his house. So it's targeted oh, wow. his house. <laughs> they go to his house. They break in through the cellar door and rush up the stairs and his wife, his, his white wife is standing at the top of the stairs and she says, what do you want? And the guy at the front of the mob says, your husband. And she says, what are you going to do with him? And they said, see that lamppost out the front there? We're going to string him up on the, from, from the, from the lamppost. But again, Jeremiah Hamilton was clever. He had heard them and he, Jumped They're over the back fence halfway down the block, <laughs> <laughs> and he was he was off. Uh, he, you know, he wasn't an idiot, right? But that that was that was the threat that he had constantly. He, he was he was um, to rip off Tom Wolfe in his day job on Wall Street. He was a master of the universe, hmm. but as soon as that job finished and he was on the streets, he he wasn't even a second class citizen, and he's got that threat of violence, and it's. That was what attracted me to try and write a book about him, was that this very weird schizophrenic life he must have he must have lived. Now, is there anything that we learn that's new about the 19th century as a whole, looking at it through the lens of someone like Jeremiah Hamilton? If you think about the way American race relations has been organized, the point has been particularly to limit and keep down African-Americans, not allowed to allow them to get ahead, not allow them to get educated, not allow them to, to get ahead in any way, shape or form. And this has led to very, very talented African-Americans going off in ways that often end up, sometimes can end up being illegal in running gambling, for example, mm-hmm. in New York, um, in city. And, and I think there is a whole lot of things that looked at now I would label as, as black achievement. So I think there's a lot, there is a lot more nuance or a lot more stuff that you can put into African-American history to sort of change slightly the contours or the way it's, it's, often, it's often considered too simplistically to be right. a story of black poverty in the city or black, blacks being at the bottom of the heap in the city. Most, most were, but there, there are odd stories like uh, Jeremiah Hamilton that um, I think can make our understanding of the past a bit more interesting. Shane White is the author of Prince of Darkness, the untold story of Jeremiah G. Hamilton, Wall Street's first black millionaire. 
We're doing this show about millionaires on the 10th anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, the biggest bankruptcy in American history. And I think it behooves us to take a moment and, and, and try to understand uh, Americans' relationship with great wealth. Uh, we obviously have a love-hate relationship with our millionaires. Uh, am I wrong? No, I think you're right. I think that's actually sort of hardwired into American culture. Back mm. to the Puritans, who have this paradox. They're supposed to work as hard as they possibly can and maybe get wealthy, but if you do, you're supposed to feel bad about it uh, <laughs> and, and to do something with it. So I think that there's a kind of instability uh, in that core belief of Americans. And then it really takes off, of course, you know, after the Civil War when there starts to be lots of new kinds of wealth that is visible in ways that's never been before U.S. history. Mm. So, Nathan, where do we get this self-made man thing from? Well, well, I think part of it is absolutely an aftermath of a moment where, you know, many of the people who had the most money were slave masters in the South, for instance, and there wasn't necessarily the argument that one could make that you were self-made if you had 400 slaves, for instance, right? Yeah. So that comes later in the 19th century when you have European immigration coming in, populating many of the cities of this country, industrialization enables the creation of these sectors where people are able to make money even if they come in without inherited wealth. So again, Andrew Carnegie, is one of these types, but there are a number of stories about the self-made man or the, the person who's pulling him or herself up by their own bootstraps. All of that becomes part of the culture that makes up the Gilded Age, to use the old Mark Twain phrase, you know, that really does mark this period. I mean, I think it's it's also important to note that the late 19th and early 20th century becomes this moment where because people are apparently self-made, they also then are able to have opinions about any number of things that have to deal with, you know, the social world that they're inhabiting. So someone like Carnegie can write, you know, a ton of essays or give speeches that are about things like, you know, race or wealth or land or, you know, a moral upright upbringing. And that becomes a start for people to then model their own behavior upon. Yeah, and I think that it's not an accident that the word millionaire is invented in the same time that Nathan is describing. Uh, and I think implicit in the idea is not just that you inherited this money, but that somehow you're new to it and you have responsibility for it. And mm. it's also on display. There are new places that you can see millionaires as they're riding right. around on their palace cars on their railroads and as they're building the mansions in Fifth Avenue in New York City. There's just a new visibility as well as a new preponderance of wealth in this period. So I think it's interesting that along with the rationale for philanthropy comes the rationale for why people deserve this. So so let's think a little bit about cultural representations of mm. those rich people. I mean, if we want to go all the way to the 1980s, I, I, I think about lifestyles of the rich and famous, uh, a very popular TV show at a, a, another moment when Americans are enamored of the rich. But I also think of all those screwball comedies sure. in the 1930s. Um, I think about bringing up Baby, where the museum is bailed out by a millionaire. But, you know, those rich people seem, number one, goofy. Mm. Number two, like right. they haven't really earned or at least worked hard 
for their money. And number three, they seem damn unhappy. Um, <laughs> Thank so, goodness. <laughs> so I, I think now, of course, this is uh, during the Great Depression in the 1930s. It's not surprising that films would kind of make fun of the rich. But, but I think throughout American history, uh, rich people have been represented as, well, maybe not quite really deserving that money. Yeah, I mean, there there was absolutely, I think, a, a way one felt comfortable poking um, fun or mocking or even, you know, condemning wealthy people or thinking about their gains as almost, you know, ill-gotten. So it's a wonderful life. You know, there's so much of the narrative device in that movie, again, right, from right. the golden age is about these unscrupulous dealings that almost run a whole town into the ground, right? Um, and you have the, the working class hero that basically has to save the day. Um, or you think about a, a film, you know, I love my musical. So Fiddler on the Roof, you know, as a great kind of mid-1960s display of, you know, Jewish life in Eastern Europe. It has a great line from this song, If I Were a Rich Man, that describes that people will somehow believe you even if you're totally wrong about what you're saying, simply because you're rich, right? It won't make one bit of difference if I answer right or wrong. When you're rich, they think you really know. So it's, again, kind of mocking, even in the case of someone who's pining to be rich. Um, yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right, Brian, that the 80s in some ways represents such a sharp break in the sense of a kind of bald celebration of wealth and accumulation as being another measure, again, a kind of second gilded age of whether or not somebody is doing or knowing the right things. Well, I have a very deep thought to share with you, Nathan, and, and to ask you if it would if it would challenge your perspective. And that thought is the Beverly Hillbillies, uh -huh. uh, the, the most popular show in the United States throughout the 1960s when there were some other things going on in the culture, I understand. Um, <laughs> and so what do you make of that, of that show? Now, I will admit uh, many people on the show talk like me and my family, uh, and we couldn't help but notice that people all over America were laughing at us, um, right. uh, and, but we couldn't figure out if it's because if they were undeservedly rich or because they were hicks, uh, and we just chose to believe that this was actually a critique of millionaires rather than uh, one more poke at hillbillies. Could I just <laughs> add, Ed, that it seemed that they always were the smartest people in the room by the exactly. end of the show. Exactly. Exactly. That's so right. So you think that's what it is, huh? That's right. Yeah, it was absolutely a wink and a nod and a jab at, you know, West Coast elite Beverly Hills lifestyle, right? And and these folks with their, you know, dead possums in the pot and always wearing the mm -hmm. same clothes in spite of all their millions, <laughs> that they, they actually were smarter than Mr. Drysdale and all the other, you know, well-heeled Beverly Hillians um, living out there. Absolutely. But, you know, the fact is that a millionaire just isn't a millionaire like they used to be. There's mm. 11 million of them in the United States now. The problem is they don't come clearly labeled. I think a mm. lot of these millionaires have all that net worth wrapped up in uh, big home mortgages or maybe college tuitions or right, maybe right. 401ks they'll cash in when they're too old to enjoy them. But <laughs> it's not really clear exactly who's a millionaire and what kind of social meaning that has anymore. I, I think we, we're going to have to up our game and talk about billionaires if we're going to be talking about the sort of mm. the same social consequences. Yeah, so the, the, the political scene is, is, a, is an amazing one. I'm reminded of the election in 2000, if you can believe it, um, Al Gore and George W. Bush. And it was a remarkable effort on Gore's part to try to get Americans to understand that the proposed tax cut coming from the Republican Party was not 
going to benefit them. And he had the statistic based off of polling data that 25 percent of Americans believe they were part of the top 5 percent. Right. <laughs> so so most Americans who are doing OK think they're actually doing better than they are. Um, and, You've and also seen how Americans test on math scores, right? <laughs> <laughs> so maybe it was just the percentages that were confusing them. But I don't think so, Brian, and, I, and I'll tell you why. And you flash forward to 2016, right? And in 2016, you have two guys from New York with very similar kinds of East Coast accents who are reaching very different constituencies in Donald J. Trump and, say, Bernie Sanders. And they're both running populist campaigns of different kinds. And I think it really does point to this split in the way that most people understand their situation. We're on the one hand, you have folks from across a variety of class spectrums who believe that Donald Trump will represent them, that they want to be like him, that the job of a good American is to become a millionaire or a billionaire. Contrast that with someone like Sanders, who's running a very clear populist campaign from the left. He believes that you should have a much more expansive social safety net. And I think that that divide really between folks who were thinking of a, about themselves as a millionaire in the making and those who are saying, you know what, we need to find a better way to reinvest in the public for everybody, that that's going to be, you know, what determines our politics going forward in, in large measure. That's going to do it for us today. If you're a millionaire and would like to pass some of your money on to a good cause, you'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>